0: On July 16th, 1969, a rocket launched from Cape Canaveral carrying three crew members on a historic journey. Four days later, on July 20th, two of the crew members, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, became the very first people in history to step foot on the moon after landing in the Sea of Tranquility. Only 10 other men have ever accomplished that feat. It is really, really pretty, unbelievably amazing what they did. And when Neil Armstrong finally stepped on the moon, Uh, when he first stepped on the moon, he would utter some words that almost every single one of us have ingrained in our minds. I wasn't alive then, but I know these words and I can fill in the rest of this sentence. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Now, it's, it's with that line in mind that I want us to set off on a journey over the next few weeks, because, because it's possible that when you think about God or when you think about faith or you think about life, you think or maybe you know that you need one giant leap forward if things are going to work out, if you're going to if you're going to make it to the place that you want to make it, if you're going to have the faith that you're gonna, that you want, if you want the if you're going to have the connection with God that you want, you need one giant leap forward. Or maybe if there's a situation in your life that's going to work out, you need one giant leap in your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. You need one giant leap forward. You need a big change from where you are to where you feel God wants you to be. You need a massive shift in the way your mind thinks about God and approaches God. You are looking for one giant leap. And for the next few weeks, what I hope we can do together, my hope is that I can help you take one giant leap forward. But and don't you love that word, but don't you, love, don't you just kind of almost like, oh, he used that word, but, but in the same way that the first steps walking on the moon was one small step that represented one giant leap forward. It's far more likely that your one giant leap will be the result of a, of a small step of faith. It's likely that your one giant leap will be the result of one small step of faith. In other words, we're so, off, so often we're looking for the big, dramatic, earth-shaking moves in our faith, in our relationship with God, in our lives, and we assume that it will require something big and something earth-shattering on our part in order to see it become a reality. And here's what's cool. God wants big for you. God wants big for you. God wants to make some big changes in your life. God wants some massive growth for you. And God God wants to dramatically change the way that you think of him. But for us to see and experience God's big changes in our life and in our faith and in our relationship with him, he doesn't require big, dramatic moves. He wants you to take a small step. He wants a small tweak in the way you think of him. He wants a small tweak in the way that you approach him and the way you approach others. That God has a thing where he has one small step that represents one giant leap forward. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at three stories where there's interactions with Jesus that seem fairly small. They're small steps. They're small changes that happen as a result. But as a result, there's a giant leap forward in people and how they approach and think of their heavenly Father. We we start today in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we start with this, and Jesus is Very early in his ministry, Jesus is walking from one place to another. He happens to stop at a particular spot. Here's what we're told in John chapter 4. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, this is important for us to understand. This is an area full of religious tradition and religious and racial tension. a sounds maybe a little bit like our world today. This is a re- full of religious tradition, and it's full of religious and racial tension. The There is the place that Jacob the 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 forefather of the nation of Israel the the he gave he, he gave this land and the and the corresponding well to his favorite son joseph which means this area held significant meaning to the jewish people this is also an area that's full of samaritans these were people when you when you hear the word samaritan and sometimes if you've grown up in church you know that there was there was conflict between the jews and the samaritans what's interesting is they were they were originally part of one nation they were originally part of one nation and then the nation of israel split off from the nation of judah and the nation of Israel was conquered about the same time that the nation of, of Judah was conquered. But they didn't necessarily take the same approach while they were in exile. These are people who had intermarried with their conquerors, had intermarried and, and had kind of put parts of their faith on the back burner. They no longer sell, like paid any, t- any attention to the hygiene standards of, of, of Judaism. They had kind of intermixed and intermarried and, and done a lot of things that that conflicted with the Jewish beliefs of the time and so there's a lot of conflict around there the Jews believe that the Samaritans were were not really God's people anymore that they had given up on a relationship with God so for Jesus for Jesus to live up to the expected standard of goodness for Jesus to live up to the expected standard of goodness of a Messiah he has no business being here in a Samaritan town and he has no business being with anybody here. He has no business being with anybody here see we often we so often have this idea of where jesus belongs that jesus belongs with the good people jesus belongs in the clean places jesus belongs with the behaviors jesus belongs with people who don't need that much help because they've got life mostly together on their own jesus belongs with the nice godly people but here's the truth wherever people have a need for jesus is where jesus belongs Wherever people have a need for Jesus is where Jesus belongs. Where people feel like God has given up on them, that's where Jesus belongs. Where people have doubts about whether or not God is even good, that's where Jesus belongs. Where people have turned their back on God and found themselves at the natural end of what happens when you turn your back and run from God, that's where Jesus belongs. Where people are hurting and broken by life, that's where Jesus belongs. Jesus doesn't stay where we think he belongs, which is really good news, because if Jesus stayed where he belonged, he never would have gotten close enough to get to you. If Jesus stayed where where we think Jesus belongs, Jesus never would have gotten close to you. Jesus is not the God who stays where he belongs. He's the God who comes close to you and to me. Now the story goes on. We pick it up in verse seven. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now this is interesting. She comes at a time where no one else came to to draw water. Most women came in the early morning or in the late afternoons to avoid the hottest part of the day, which was noon. She comes at the, at the hottest part of the day, which is kind of an interesting thing, and I think we're going to find out why in a little bit. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. See, Jews and Samaritans, culturally, they played the same game that we all grew up playing in middle school dance parties. You Jews stayed on one wall, Samaritans stayed on the other wall. No one comes into the middle. We don't want your cooties. You don't want our cooties. We're all just going to stay away from each other. We're going to respectfully wave at each other and smile at each other and make jokes about each other. And it's going to be great. But this, like, we're not going to interact. We're not going to interact. This woman has a question like, well, how can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman for a drink? of water. She's, she, she, she's confused about why he would even speak to her. Jesus answered in verse 10, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the, sir, said the woman, you don't even, a you don't even have a bucket. You don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. And I, I love, I love this response. It's, it's kind of sassy pants at the beginning. Like, sir, you don't even have a bucket. Like, what, like, how are you? How how would you get living water? Because the well is deep, and you don't even have a bucket, let alone a rope, let alone all the other stuff that it takes to get a bucket. But Jesus, if you notice, Jesus uses this conversation about everyday things to start a conversation about eternal things, about the things that matter most. And the woman is intrigued and a little bit confused. And so we go on. So where do you, so like you you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? Are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. See, in the way that you and I would normally think of Jesus, we would think his reaction would be frustration and anger to this, to this questioning and to this confusion. You just don't get it. You never will. Just get out of here. Peace out. I, like, you'll never understand what I'm talking about. And that's and and that's not how Jesus responds. That's not how Jesus responds here. Jesus, as we're about to see, Jesus is patient with the woman's misunderstanding. She's patient with He's patient with her confusion, which is good news here as well. Jesus is patient with your misunderstanding and with your confusion. Jesus is patient with with your misunderstanding and with your, with your confusion. Jesus is okay with you not getting it all at once. Jesus is okay that it takes time to figure things out. Jesus is okay with you still having questions and doubts after nine years of, of following him. Jesus is patient with us as we seek him and as we attempt with our limited minds to understand an unlimited God. So in his patience, In his patience, Jesus responds to the woman's confusion, not with anger, but with patient explanation. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, pointing to the well. Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So I, so I won't have to do that anymore. So I will not have to do this anymore. Jesus starts with the good news. I have water. And if you drink it, you will never thirst again. I have water. And if you drink it, you will never thirst again. I offer you and anyone else who wants to drink, I offer you eternal life. And the woman is intrigued. Who wouldn't be? She wants what Jesus has to offer because who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? I mean, like, if someone today came up to you and said, hey, I have water that brings eternal life, and if they didn't seem like an out-and-out crazy person, like, they actually seemed like someone who had the credibility that maybe they had, in fact, pulled off eternal water that, or, like, water that leads to eternal life, like, I'll take a bottle. I mean, like, who... Who wouldn't want that? If the chances, if there's a chance and the person doesn't seem like a crazy person, who wouldn't want a taste of the living water? Who wouldn't want a taste of that living water? And then the conversation takes a little turn. So Jesus just offered her living water. And then he says, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. And she says, I don't, I don't, I don't have a husband, she answered. And then Jesus says, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband what you have said is true again this is so interesting when you look at these this this five verses of, of scripture here all together here's something so fascinating that I think we as Christians get so wrong when we when we try to help people who maybe don't know the good news, who haven't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet, when we try to, do, to, to help them understand something, I think we start in the wrong place. We don't follow the Jesus model, but what Jesus did is Jesus starts with the good news and then he addresses the sin. Jesus starts with the good news and then he addresses the sin. So often we get this backwards and we push people away that Jesus is trying to pull close. See, we often say things like, well, the gospel starts with our sin. It doesn't. The gospel does not start with our sin. We have plenty of stuff to deal with, but that's not where the gospel starts. I mean, Jesus didn't start there, right? Jesus didn't start with shame and with guilt trip and reminding people of how bad they were. Jesus pointed to how good he was, how good the father is, how good eternal life could be. Like that, That's where Jesus started. That's how where Jesus always started. The gospel starts with the goodness of a loving God. The gospel starts with God God so loved the gospel starts with God is love. And here's why I think Jesus started out with the good news, with the good news of the gospel. The goodness of the good news is bigger than the badness of the bad news. The goodness of the good news, the goodness of God's love, the goodness of God's grace, the goodness of God's forgiveness. I mean, these are no small things that, 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 that Jesus was that Jesus offered to us. These are no small things. These are incredibly great. I mean, like. Um, amazing news. The goodness of the good news is bigger than the bigness of the bad news. What Jesus offers is so extraordinary. It has to be the starting point. Everything else is secondary and small potatoes in comparison. So Jesus starts with the good news because the good news is so good. It needs to be known. Jesus starts with the good news and then out of that addresses the issue. If you notice what Jesus does, Jesus starts with the good news, but then Jesus is also the one who brings up the bad news, brings up her issue, brings up her sin. And she's not offended. If you notice, she's not offended. She's intrigued. How could this stranger possibly know this about me? How could this guy who's promising eternal life know this, but still want to speak and be in a relationship with me? If he knows how hopeless I am, why would he want anything to do with me? And here's what this woman had experienced, what she was living with. She was living with the gravity of sin because sin has a gravity, right? Sin has a gravity. I mean, has anyone else ever experienced the gravity of sin? I mean, like, like I think all of us have. I, it, it, like here, and here, here's what I mean by that. If you're, if, you're not, if you're not, you know, tracking with me and can't understand what I would mean by that, I, the gravity of sin, the fact that sin has a gravity is that thing where I know I need to change and I try and it works for a stretch, but then I end up right back where I was. I end up right back where I was. I try, but it feels like something keeps pulling me backwards. Every time I, every time I try to move forward, it feels as if something is pulling me backwards when I try to move forward. For her, for her, it was one bad marriage that she got out of and thinking, surely next time will be different and next time will be better and next time we'll really be in love and we'll stay in love and we'll do this and then the next time was just more of the same and she tried to move forward and ended back in the same place and it happened again and back in the same place and it happened again back in the same place. And it happened again and back in the same place. And so now we give up on the idea of marriage, but we're still, but we still want a relationship with the guy. So we move it like this was her story. The gravity of sin kept pulling her back to the same place and to the same place and to the same place. And no matter how hard she tried to move forward, she could not move forward. She ended up back in the same place. You see, the gravity of sin is that pull back to the old, the unhealthy, the unhelpful, the dangerous, the self-destructive, and others' destructive patterns of our past. It's why our our present ends up so often looking exactly like our past, just the the names and faces are changed, but the patterns are still all the same. It's why those bad habits that you have are hard to break. It's why those destructive patterns that you live in are so hard to break. This gravity of sin is real and it's strong. It can often feel inescapable. It can it leads us to like like we're hopelessly doomed to repeat the same patterns and the same mistakes over and over and over and eventually they'll crush us. See, gra- sin has a gravity. It keeps pulling us back. And gravity is a strong force. Luckily for this woman, the weight of her the weight of gravity of sin didn't keep her from taking a small step in the direction of something and someone stronger. The awareness of her guilt didn't push her away. She leaned in. Here's what happens next. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Again, obviously she's going, obviously you're someone who understands some things. You're someone who understands some things and I've got some questions. And so while you're here, for however long this conversation lasts, I'm going to ask you every, every question that I've got. I want to find out everything that I can from you. Like, so let's keep talking. Here's my question. And Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. yes. The Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. See, Samaritans were people who had been told that their worship was illegitimate that their worship was illegitimate. That because of where they were from and what their ancestors had done, they couldn't really truly worship God. They couldn't fully worship God. They couldn't worship God because they weren't worshiping where worship was supposed to happen. They weren't worshiping at the temple. They weren't worshiping on the holy mountain. They weren't worshiping with the right priests. They weren't worshiping right so they couldn't worship fully. Jesus said, I'm telling you now, there's a day coming and I'm telling you, it's here now because I'm here now that none of that matters. It will not be about the place you're from or the color of your skin or the sound of your accent or who your ancestors were. It will be about the condition and the posture of your heart. To a culture that had been told that religion was all about special places and special people and precise ways of worship, this is groundbreaking. And this is such a big deal that we have to understand that I I hope you're paying attention right now. Jesus came to reach the one and to change the game for everyone. Jesus came to reach the one, to have these conversations, to let an individual person know that they could connect with their heavenly father, that their heavenly father had loved them and had sent him to so that they could begin and renew a relationship with their heavenly father. He came to reach the one, but he also came to change the game for everyone, that the game would no longer be about special places and special people and special ways to worship. It would be about the condition of your heart, that race would no longer separate people from God, that, that the color of someone's skin would no longer separate people from God, that the sound of someone's voice and the accent that they carried would no longer separate people from God, that what someone's ancestors had done would no longer matter between a relationship with a human being and and their heavenly father, that Jesus came to change the game for everyone and for all of time, that now what would matter from this point forward because Jesus had come to change the game would be the condition and the position of your heart. It's a beautiful truth. Here's what happened next. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain ev- everything to us. I mean, like, you can almost feel her nudging and asking by hands. Like, I, I know Messiah is coming. Like, is-, is, it- is it you? Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This is a huge moment. And it seems like such a small moment. Because this isn't a sermon Jesus is giving. This isn't Jesus teaching a crowd of 5,000 people on a mountainside. This doesn't come after some miraculous you know, thing that Jesus had done to heal someone or bring someone back to life or to feed you know, a multitude of people. This is just in a normal conversation. This is just Jesus in a normal conversation. He reveals that he's the Messiah. That he's the Savior coming to the world. Maybe even more amazing is Jesus has this conversation again with someone who most wouldn't expect Jesus to have this conversation with. I mean, the very first person that Jesus chooses to reveal his identity as a Messiah is a woman with five divorces on record who's currently shacking up with a new dude. I mean, like, no matter what you believe about divorce and remarriage, you, you'd kind of look at this woman and go, oh boy, that's kind of a lot. It's kind of a lot. That's, I mean, it's kind, of, kind of a lot. If you have ever, this is why this is so, so amazing. If you have ever thought that this whole Jesus thing had anything to do with deserving, this conversation blows it out of the water. That it never has been and it never will be, have anything to do with deserving. That it never has and it never will have anything to do with deserving. This woman doesn't deserve even to be on Jesus' Facebook friends list. Let alone to be the person who Jesus is the very first person to actually reveal his identity as the Messiah to. And yet here we are. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's God so loved first. And then we're told the woman responds this way. The woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? Jesus reveals to her that he's the Messiah. And she runs off to tell everyone about the man who offered her eternal life, who told her everything that she ever did, who told her that the game is about to change and that he is the game changer. Her life would never be the same. She believes and her life changes. And an entire town believes because of her words and her testimony. That's the power of an encounter with Jesus. Now, you hear that and you start to think like, okay, well, what does that have to do with space and one giant leap and what like what's the connection to all this? See here's the thing. In nature there are four there are four forces. There are four forces of nature. The four forces are simply this it's gravity and magnetism, the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. I want to talk about two of those today. I want to talk about gravity and magnetism. Would you say gravity wherever you are out loud in the middle of your room with headphones in so no one else around you is even going to understand what you're saying? Would you say gravity Or would you say magnetism? Gravity and magnetism. See, now all of us know the power of gravity. All of us know the power of gravity. It's something that you don't think about a whole lot, but it's something that you experience every single day. Every time you drop a quarter, the reason it falls to the ground is because of gravity. Every time that you wish you could float up to the top of the ceiling to grab the balloon that your kid dropped and let let go of and it's up at the top of the ceiling, the reason you can't go get that is because of gravity. The reason that you haven't drifted off into space every time that you walk outside the doors of your house and there is no ceiling, the reason that you don't drift off into space as much as maybe you would want to is gravity. Gravity is a strong force. Gravity is that force that pulls us all down and keeps us tethered to the earth. It's a strong force. It's a strong force. It requires a lot of force, to keep us all tethered to the earth, but in a great question to all our engineers and engineering students who may be watching, which is stronger, gravity or magnetism? Gravity or magnetism? Of course, all of us, every engineering student and every pastor who's spent the last month trying to understand this has has learned that magnetism is far stronger than gravity. Magnetism is a hundred trillion trillion times stronger. Then gravity, this is why, this is why when you take a two ounce magnet, you haven't thought about this, but this is why, when you take a two ounce magnet and you use that magnet to put a wedding invitation or your child's artwork up on a refrigerator, when you use that two ounce magnet, nothing slips. Your art, the artwork doesn't slip. The wedding invitation doesn't, doesn't slip. It stays where it's supposed to stay. A two ounce magnet overcomes the entire force of the entire earth's gravitational force. two ounce magnet. Now, gravity is a strong force, but magnetism is stronger. Gravity is a strong force, but magnetism is stronger. See, you have faced gravity your whole life. Just like the woman who came to the well, you have been trying to deal with the gravity of your sin for your entire life. You've tried to fight it. You've tried to overcome it. You've tried with all your might to break the power of your bad habits. You've done your best to break the free from the gravity of addiction. You've done everything you could think of to ditch those terrible self-destructive habits in relationships. And it hasn't worked because gravity is strong. It hasn't worked because gravity is strong and your effort and your, and your attempts to break free and every bit of your will and all of that has not been able to overcome the strength of gravity. But magnetism is stronger. Magnetism is stronger, which is why it's so interesting what Jesus said later to people who are still wondering what he was all about. In John chapter 12, verse 32, it says this. Jesus said, as for me, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw, I will draw all people to myself. See, draw is magnet language. Draw is magnet language. This is a prediction of how Jesus would die, that he would be lifted up from the earth on a cross, and also a prediction of what would happen as as a result, that because Jesus was lifted up, he would then be able to lift others up to himself. He'd be able to lift others up by himself. He would be able to lift others up to himself. See, here's the bottom line today. Here's the thing that may help you take one giant leap forward. Here's the small step, the small tweak, the small understanding of how we approach our Heavenly Father that might just lead you to one giant leap forward. Jesus is the magnet that overcomes the gravity of sin. Jesus is the magnet that overcomes the gravity of your sin. This is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of your soul. Jesus is the Savior who died to break the power of death, hell, and the grave for you and for every man. Jesus went to the cross to do for you what your best and your strongest efforts could never do for you. He went to the cross to break the gravity of sin over your life and to lift you to a new life, to pull you, to draw you to a new life free as an overcomer of this world and the gravity of sin. Jesus is the magnet. Jesus is stronger than the gravity of sin. Jesus is the magnet that pulls you out of sin, that pulls you over sin, that Jesus is the magnet that has the strength to overcome the gravity of sin. And so two thoughts today as, as we close, as we come to the end. Two thoughts. First one is simply this, that you'll only find forgiveness from sin in Jesus. See, so many of us, we're, we're looking for forgiveness. We know we need forgiveness. Like on some level, we know, we have an understanding that we need forgiveness for the things that we have done, for the things that have broken the heart of God, for the things that we have knowingly done in disobedience to God that wrecked our lives and wrecked the lives of other people. We know that we need forgiveness. And we search for it in all kinds of different places. We try to earn it by doing all kinds of different things. See, so many people grow up in church hearing that there's grace through faith, grace through faith, grace through faith. But what's modeled for us is that we have to try really hard in order to to earn it. That we have to try and do certain things in order to earn it. And at the end of the day, you will never earn God's forgiveness. You can't. That's why it's called forgiveness. It only is given from someone to another person. And so you will only find forgiveness for your sins in Jesus. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to, to deserve it. Stop trying to get in God's good graces to earn his forgiveness. Simply reach out and you ask him for forgiveness. You ask him for the forgiveness that he readily made available through Jesus on the cross. Jesus went to a cross to die for your sin. That's the reason forgiveness is only found in him. If you've been trying to find forgiveness in any other way, you need to stop looking for any other way. If you've been trying to find forgiveness through any other method, stop trying any other method. Jesus is the only way to forgiveness. And then here's the second thought. You'll only live free from sin with Jesus. You'll only live free from sin with Jesus. He is the magnet that is pulling you out of a life dominated by sin. He's the one with the strength to, break, free, to help break you free from the sin that has so easily entangled you. Jesus is the only one who can break the power of your sin, so you will only live free from sin with Jesus. He is the magnet that's stronger than the gravity of sin. He can pull you out. He can lead you forward. He can show you the way. He can guide you step by step. Jesus is the magnet that overcomes the gravity of your sin. That's why he's the only one who can lead you free and can help you live free from the power of sin. Jesus, one more time, Jesus is the magnet that overcomes the gravity of sin in your life. And when you understand that, it's one small step for you, one giant leap forward closer to the heavenly father who loves you and wants a relationship with you. Let's pray together. Today, as as we pray, some of you, you need to make a decision right in this moment to accept your heavenly father, to accept Jesus as the savior, to accept Jesus as the magnet who breaks the power of sin in your life and pulls you into a new life. He's the one who does that. He is the one, who, the only one who's powerful enough to break the gravity of sin in your life and to pull you into a new life that's free from the power of sin. If you wanna do that today, you simply pray to your heavenly father to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord. You place your trust in his death for the forgiveness of your sin and in his resurrection for the new life, to receive the new life that he has, that he wants for you. If you're doing that right now, I'd encourage you to click on the link in the description of this video to let us know you're making a decision so we can know how to pray with you and let, and let you know some steps that you can take from this point forward. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're so good. God, thank you for that there is someone who can break the power of gravity, in, of the gravity of sin in our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to come live among us, to live as one of us, to live sinlessly among us, to die for all of us, to break the power of sin and rose from the dead so that we could have a new life in you. God, thank you that Jesus came to be the magnet. Thank you that his pull forward is stronger than the pull backward of sin. God, thank you that we can find freedom and hope and life and joy and peace in him and ultimately find connection with you through him. So God, today we simply pray that we would stop looking to anything else, stop looking for anything else. God, that we would have the wisdom to place our trust in Jesus as the only one who can break us free from the power of our sin and as the only one who can bring us forward into new life in you. God, help us to place our trust in that. Help us to live every day leaning into the magnetic pull that Jesus has on our lives as the one who can lift us free from sin, as the one who can forgive us from sin, as the one who can lead us forward. God, help us to take one small step today and one small step the next day and one small step in following Jesus the next day. And God, when we look back, help it to be one giant leap forward from where we are today to where you want us to be. We love you, God. We pray this all in Jesus' strong name. And everyone said, Amen men